Let's go ahead and get started. I want to welcome you to Route 66 again. It's uh, hard to believe it, but we've already been at this now for a year and a half. I didn't. Uh, I was looking back on the calendar and seeing it's been a year and a half that we've been doing this. It's been a really neat journey, I think, for our church to go through God's Word together and had some really great teachers uh, taking us down the Old Testament, Route 66, and now we're turning onto the New Testament part of the road. Um, tonight I've been uh, tasked to provide an introduction to uh, the Gospels. So this is going to be by nature. We cannot read through all four Gospels tonight. <laughs> Can't get into a lot of the details that I'd like to, but um, maybe sometime in the future I can come back and unpack some of the things that I just basically skip over the, the top of the waves on tonight. we got a lot to cover, so let me open in a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll get right into the material. Father, we want to thank you once again as we come to your word and we get uh, ready for a, a new season, a New Testament season of Route 66, uh, walking through each book of uh, Holy Scripture. We are so thankful to come into this part of the story, having been prepared for really a year and a half um, for the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> That's what uh, the New Testament is all about, uh, the light dawning. Um, shining brightly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for um, being part of that story and for your grace in putting us on this side of the cross uh, where we are included to uh, included into and grafted into a people uh, chosen by you centuries and millennia ago. Thank you for what um, this study represents. Thank you for the opportunity to get a little more uh, familiar with Scripture, uh, the the uh, the overview of Scripture, and I pray that uh, what we learn tonight will help us um, to get more out of Your Word, to be excited about it, learn from it, uh, and to have great discernment too as we go through it. Please help us tonight. May You be glorified. May Your Son be lifted up. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So, what I'd like to do tonight. Um, is to give you some information that is going to help you get more uh, maybe out of your reading of the Gospels, the four Gospels, and then also uh, try to help you grow in discernment regarding uh, the relationship of the Gospels with one another, uh, especially in light of some more recent evangelical critical scholarship. Um, I'm going to save that portion about critical scholarship and all that to the very end. And that way, if we run out of time, we're not going into some of that detail. I don't really want to actually go into detail. I took a, I took a course, a very intense course uh, in seminary all about that issue. We're not going to be able to do it justice tonight. Uh, but there are a couple things I'd like to say uh, about the composition of the Gospels and all that. So first, though, I want to um, try to help you to get a little more out of reading the gospel, get the most out of it, and I'd like to run through first some of the history and social, social situation of New Testament times, and then secondly, just get a little bit of an overview of the life of Christ. Uh, so this, as I said, is going to be a very brief um, 30,000, 35,000 foot view of uh, the story. Uh, but I think it's probably, you all are readers of scriptures, so is probably nothing new to you, and hopefully some of it will be helpful. 
So let's talk about New Testament times and, and think about the, uh, first of all, the political background of uh, the Gospels. So the history of New Testament times obviously begins with Old Testament history, and uh, particularly picking up the story after the exiles and the return of the Jews to the land uh, of Judah, uh, Palestine. Um, in the book of Daniel, you can read about the empires uh, that were going to come after uh, Babylon, the empires of the world, their succession from Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greece and then to Rome, and that brings us right up into uh, New Testament times. The, the prophetic voice, as we know, fell silent after Malachi, and that voice didn't return until Gabriel visited Zechariah and then Mary in Luke 1. And we've studied through that together as a church uh, in our main service. And even though that voice fell silent, we see, uh, by looking at the book of Daniel and seeing the, the rise and fall of those empires, we see that God was at work. He was always at work uh, bringing the world into preparation for uh, the coming of the Messiah. So, for example, God raised up uh, Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, to decree the return of the exiles. Uh, that happened even in, in uh, the book of Daniel, where Darius the Mede, uh, which is a, probably a title, uh, that Darius the Mede applies to five Persian kings or rulers, and really uh, Darius the Mede, Darius the Mede, is Cyrus, king of Persia. And he came in and conquered um, and decreed the return of the exiles to the land of Judah and uh, Judea and the Persian Empire ensured uh, through its law of the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed and altered, um, and ensured the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So let me ask you a question uh, with regard to Cyrus, the Persian uh, king. What were the prophetic and theological purposes um, of bringing Israel back into the land at that time? What comes to your mind when you think about what God was doing, what purposes he was fulfilling in bringing Israel back to the land? Yeah. Well, Messiah had to be born in Israel. There you go. That's, that's a good start. Messiah had to be born in Israel. So he's preparing, he's preparing the, for the coming of the Messiah through that, bringing those people back in the land. What else? There are a few of you, so I can't, you can't, you can't rely on somebody else. to. You've got to be the one. Come on. What else? I'll take even a wiggling of the nose. <laughs> a, a sudden twitch. Well, he was, he was bringing the nation back together, back, back to the Holy Land. What's important about that? And you're right. Well, it was prophesied that he would do that, so it was filling, fulfilling the prophecy. Fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And what's important about fulfilling prophecy is that God's character is on the line. His faithfulness is on the line. And so what he said he would do in the time he said he would do it, he's doing it 70 years and he brings them back. Yeah. So the faithfulness of God is on the line. His restoration promises, preparing his people for the Messiah to come. That's all happening. After the Medes and the Persians, after the Persian Empire, God raised up Alexander the Great. 
Now, Alexander the Great flew through the world in a very short time, taking over everything. And once he basically conquered the Persians, a year later he died. <laughs> just before his, I guess he wore himself out, but uh, just before his 34th birthday. So he Hellenized the world. You know what I mean by Hellenization? Th that mean, means making the world Greek. It was spreading Greek language, Greek culture. So God used Alexander the Great to Hellenize the world. He used the Hellenistic period to bring the interests of the West further to the East. Um, what was the biblical purpose of Hellenization? What would you say? Yeah, Chuck. Uh, I would say that Hellenization that was God's way of making sure that um, the language of Greek, uh, Koine, Koine Greek, Koine Greek, Koine yeah. Greek, would be as far widespread as possible through trade routes and stuff like that. You got it. You know, so that the word of God could spread in the early church, especially. Excellent, excellent. That's exactly right. So, I mean, there are there are a number of things that we could point to, but that is probably the fundamental, essential thing. Is that you see this koine? Koine is a term that means common. So, this common Greek, um, a trade a trade language, basically from Greece all the way over to almost to India. Um, you see, you see the, that becomes the lingua franca, franca of, the, of the entire world. And they're trading with one another. And they're all, um, they love Greek culture. It's spread all over the, the earth. And, um, and everybody wants to speak Greek. Everybody wants to run around in togas and speak Greek, I guess. So, but that, was, that served the purposes of God, the biblical purpose of God, because these New Testament writings are all in what language? Greek. Greek. And who can read it? Everybody in the empire. Okay? What is the. Um, okay, so. Um, there's also um, God raising up the Roman Empire after the Greek Empire uh, to create uh, stability in the empire. I mean, there was. Uh, whenever, whenever you don't have clear political lines and authority, uh, you have instability. And when there's instability, you have. And we see it all over the world where there's instability. You see uh, people who are stronger than the weaker ones taking advantage of them. Uh, this is especially true in uh, this part of the world where highway robbery and people jumping caravans and taking, taking people down and hurting and killing and murdering, robbing, all that stuff is going on. So the Romans came in and with their iron smashed people into submission. Um, that created what was called the Pax Romana, the peace provided by Rome. Uh, Rome provided infrastructure and, like roads. Rome also provided taxation in order to pay for that military that would smash people into compliance and to pay for all those roads on which their military could travel and smash people into compliance. Okay, so. <laughs> Came throughout the uh, the entire empire, took over whatever the Greeks were used to used to rule, and now the Romans are in charge. What's the prophetic purpose of that, of Rome, and and specifically of Roman taxation? The decree that all the world would be taxed caused the census, which forced Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Excellent. Where do you get that? <laughs> From scripture. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I figure, because right? you could you be more specific. Luke chapter two, verse one. Excellent. Yeah. So, fantastic. Well done. You get a star. So, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So each went to be registered, each to his own town. And who also went up? Joseph. Joseph. He went to be registered uh, from Galilee, to, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he's of the house and lineage of, Beth, of uh, David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who's with child, who's with the Christ child. So he goes, and that's all in fulfillment of prophecy, Micah 5.2, and that prophecy would not be fulfilled without this complex Roman taxation and the demand for the Pax Romana, the demand for Roman military to smash people into compliance like a rod of iron, right? And um, to build those roads and spread everything. So what about the practical gospel purpose of this Roman peace that's enforced by military might and this infrastructure. What did you see? What about that, Gary? Same thing as uh, the military roads we have in our country. We call them the interstate highway system, but they're a, a magnificent transportation system. Yeah, they are. And that spread the that spread the word. So missionaries use those roads. Paul used those roads. Exactly, the gospel spread. So language from the Greeks, roads with the Romans. God was providing for His. Christ and the gospel to spread. When Alexander the Great died in Babylon at the age of 33, and just before he turned 34, he left the empire at that time to his top four generals, uh, Cassander, uh, Lysimachus, uh, uh, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And two of them, Ptolemy and Seleucus, they became rivals and their rivalry dominated Palestine for the next 200 years. The Jews living in Judea, they were squeezed between the Ptolemies in, the, in Egypt in the south and the Seleucids based in Syria in the north. They were squeezed in there. And at first, the Greeks during that time were relatively tolerant toward Jews who were living in Palestine. They allowed them to continue their, their customs and practice their religion. And Hellenization, uh, as we said, kept prop the uh, influence of Greek thought and culture alive. And many of the Jews loved Greek culture. The world loved Greek culture. They, they absolutely loved it. But eventually this uh, peaceful coexistence between uh, Greek way of thinking and Greek way of ruling and the Jews came to an end when um, the Seleucid general Antiochus Epiphanes. Anybody heard that name? Anybody know Antiochus Epiphanes? He entered Jerusalem and he pursued an aggressive and absolutely exclusive Hellenization program. Anybody know what he did? Yeah, Chuck? Well, uh, I think he set up uh, an idol in the, the temple in Jerusalem, right? Well, he, exactly. what he did is he banned sacrifice. He banned all Jewish sacrifice. And in order to ensure Jews wouldn't sacrifice anymore, he went to the altar in the temple and sacrificed a pig on it. Pig, that's right. Oh. Yeah. That's called the abomination of desolation. Right. <laughs> and he burned copies of the Torah. He banned the Torah. 
and he installed a pagan priest in the temple. So he was absolutely brutal, this guy Anti Antiochus Epiphanes. Slaughtered men, women, and children. He massacred like an estimated 80,000 men. He captured uh, 80,000 others. He sold 40,000 of those captives into slavery. He was profane. He was ruthless. Um, and that systematic persecution of the Jews uh, is what prefigures the coming of an uh, the Antichrist in the Great Tribulation. Daniel prophesies it, talk talks about it in Revelation. But Antiochus' fierce, violent attempt to end Jewish religion, um, everybody, that obviously, when something like that comes into your, uh, your peaceful town, and all of a sudden the temple that you visit every single year to bring your sacrifices, you bring your family, when he's sacrificed a pig on your sacred altar, um, that kind of gets on your nose, doesn't it? It makes you mad. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, to Judas Maccabees. So this led to the Maccabean revolt. This rural priest uh, named Mattathias, he had five sons and Jewish, uh, or Judas, I should say, was their leader. Uh, they conducted basically a 24-year war against the Romans. And the Maccabees took back the temple. They took back the priesthood. Um, and while they were in power, things seemed to be pretty Prosperous. In fact, a lot of people were looking to Judas Maccabees and the Maccabeans to uh, be ushering in the restoration promises of God. Possibly even Messiah has come. So he wasn't Messiah, by the way. Uh, one of the uh, Maccabeus' descendants, Hashmon, became the high priest and progenitor of the Has Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmoneans became high priests. So they even though they weren't from the line of Zadok. Uh, they ruled as kings, even though they were not from the tribe of Judah. And the Maccabe Maccabeans and the Hasmoneans, uh, they, were, they made very bad messiahs, but they did succeed in reestablishing Jewish uh, interests in the region. Um, they succeeded in ritually cleansing the temple. Uh, they reinstituted sacrifice, the practice of Jewish religion, uh, but Along the way, they succumb to their temptations toward worldliness, toward uh, political ambition and power and money and corruption. So that all infiltrated into that uh, Hasmonean priesthood. Uh, one of the areas that was conquered by the Maccabees, uh, northeast of Jerusalem, just south of Samaria, was a place called Idumea. Idumea. Idumea was inhabited by ethnic Edomites, who are descendants of Esau. The Maccabees, they had conquered the Idumeans. They forced the Idumeans to convert to Judaism. And so ethnically and racially, they were Edomites, descendants of Esau, but culturally and religiously, they were proselytes to Judaism. Anybody know the name of the probably the most famous Idumean king that came uh, out of, you know, he's known in the New Testament. Anybody know his name? Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Herod the Great was one of these guys. Ethnically, racially, a descendant of Esau, mixed in. But culturally, religiously, he's Judaistic, I guess you could say is probably the best way to put it. He's really not, he's really just in love with power and in love with uh, political influence. But toward the, toward the end of the Maccabean rule, the governorship of that area, Idumea, it fell to, to a man named Antipater. 
And he fathered several sons, including Herod, the great, who became Herod the Great. Antipater was a very shrewd man dealing with Rome. He was conniving, uh, politically ambitious. And he and his sons, they always aligned himself, themselves with whoever would provide them with personal power, with political authority. So like, for example, when uh, the Roman general Pompey conquered Palestine, Antipater, had, uh, he demonstrated his loyalty to him. Uh, when Julius Caesar, though, when he defeated Pompey, Antipater and Herod switched sides. Uh, because their loyalty went with who's most powerful. Um, Julius Caesar awarded uh, Antipater's sons, uh, Phasaelus and Herod, with governorships. And Phasaelus became the governor of Jerusalem, and Herod became the governor of Galilee. Uh, Herod, he was only 25 years old at that time when he became governor of Galilee. Then when Julius Caesar was assassinated, Antipater and Herod switched sides again. And they aligned themselves with Cassius, the Roman senator, senator who instigated uh, Caesar's assassination. Later, when Mark Antony and Caesar's son Octavius defeated Cassius, guess what? Herod, Herod switched sides, switched allegiances yet again. Octavius finally defeated Antony. He took the title Caesar Augustus. And then Herod spent the rest of his life loyal to Caesar Augustus because Caesar Augustus, after all, stayed in power quite a long time. So... One of uh, Rome's most persistent enemies, the Parthenians, they conquered Palestine. That forced Herod to flee into Rome at one point. And while he was in Rome, Herod ingratiated himself to the Romans. The Roman Senate conferred upon him titled the King of the Jews, gave him an army, sent him back to Judea, and let him uh, see what he could do. So Herod went back there. He recaptured Jerusalem for Rome. He became the sole Ju ruler of Judea. And Luke describes him in verse 5, and Luke, uh, Herod, king of Judea, and that's accurate. He was king of Judea. Judea included the territory of Galilee, Perea, and Samaria as well at that time, a fairly significant uh, region, and Herod, Herod was a very significant figure. But all those accomplishments um, aside, we understand what Herod was from Scripture, right? He was, he was uh, a brutal tyrant, and... Uh, Caesar Augustus reportedly said about Herod, it is better to be Herod's dog than to be one of his children, because after all, he, he killed his kids. Um, he killed them not uh, in the womb or anything. He killed them when they were raised. I mean, he was a very paranoid man. Anyway, that's getting into other, other ground. I don't want to get into all that, but... Let's talk real quick, though. This is kind of what's set up. So you got Roman rule. It's through the puppet Herod, and he is there as a vassal of Rome and doing Rome's bidding, even though, uh, um, and he tries to keep Rome at bay a little bit while making some money for himself and influencing. Um, but I want to go back to what we might call, that's a political situation. Let's talk about the social background uh, in, in New Testament times. Um, just a, several Jewish social groups present in Palestine. Uh, there were like the Jewish elders. You sometimes see the elders referred to in the gospel. Uh, I've got a number of references here. I won't, I won't clutter your mind with that. But many of the elders came from aristocratic families. These are landed people from landed families. They have property. They have wealth. Some of them were religious Pharisees. Some of them are aligned with... Uh, the Sadducees and the temple, some are just connected people, uh, but those are the elders. There's also the Jewish 
uh, the religious establishment represented by the priests, the chief priests on the one hand, and then Pharisees on the other hand. You can see that whole thing is the, even though the priests and chief priests and the Pharisees are really not aligned until Jesus comes, and then they get on board with one another and become good friends. <clears throat> but the priests and the chief priests, these are uh, those who were descended, whether politically connected or even descendants of, uh, those who were installed during the Hasmonean period. So they're not necessarily des descendants of Levi. They're not from the uh, Levitical tribe, but, um, but they're connected. So they are the ones who dominated temporal operations. They're the ones who had a lot of influence in the Sanhedrin, and they belonged, tended to, be to belong to the Sadducee party. The Sadducees are the classic liberals. They basically denied most of Scripture except for the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They said the Torah is binding, um, but only as interpreted by, by them. So they have some scribes employed, uh, you know, experts in the law who can kind of favor their interpretations. Uh, they believe the literal judgments of Deuteronomy came about by not obeying it, but uh, they believe themselves to be the true interpreters of the Torah. But this brought conflict with the Pharisees, who believed that they were the true interpreters of the Torah. And uh, actually, the Pharisees were more correct in their conservative view of Scripture to believe that not just the law, but the writings and the prophets, the Psalms, everything is inspired Scripture. Pharisees were part of that religious establishment, though. They were uh, prominent laymen, many wealthy <laughs> businessmen, predominantly belonged to the Pharisee party. They're concerned about the religious traditions of their fathers, uh, preserving those. Uh, they're much more in touch with the people of the land. They're uh, connected with the people. They have a strong influence over the common people uh, because they kind of emerged and came up from them. Um, also, the scribes I mentioned, they're devoted to the translation of the scripture, transmission of the scripture. They copied scripture a lot, became very familiar with the Bible, and then experts in the law uh, lawyers, legal uh, cases, they got involved in that. They were teachers of the law. Uh, some of the scribes, um, as I said, were in league with the Pharisees because they had a heart for conservative theology. Uh, others are more in line with uh, the, the priests who are basically the liberals. They're in for the money. They're trying to maintain control over the temple because the temple means money. It means sacrifices. It means dictating uh, what sacrifices are acceptable and what aren't. And if you have a sacrifice that isn't acceptable, well, we have to throw that away. But by the way, we have some vendors over here who have some acceptable sacrifices. And if you just want to go ahead and make the exchange, uh, oh, but how do the vendors get there in the temple environment? Oh, they throw a little money the, the, uh, into the Sadducees' pockets. So that's the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Two other Jewish parties, the Essenes and the Zealots. The Essenes were uh, separatists that arose in, in, in the intertestamental period. They, they looked at the temple rightly as compromised, as no longer really faithful. They looked at uh, the various religious parties of the Jews uh, involved in the temple as compromisers. And so they stayed away from Jerusalem and the main cities. Uh, you may remember the Qumran community where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was an Essene community. Um, the Zealots also, their political group. So rather than take the tack of the Essenes, they have the same viewpoint, everything's compromised, but the Zealots say, no, we're not going to run to the hills, we're actually going to go in and 
exert our influence and power. The, the Sicarii, I mentioned them, I think, on Sunday. Um, those uh, assassins, they kind of came out of that zealot party. So they strike out against the compromisers of the Jewish establishment. The, um, the practice of religion, though, in the first century, among the predominant, you know, the hoi polloi, the masses, people like us, um, really centered on the synagogue during your regular life, where the scripture is taught and Jewish community is experienced and everything, but then also the temple itself. Um, being Jewish, it really centered more at the time on what was practiced more than on what was believed. Uh, several beliefs um, among the parties distilled down, uh, learned over the centuries, coming out of the exile. There were certain beliefs that were fixed in their minds. Uh, the people of the land, primarily in New Testament times, they were strict and stringent monotheists. So basically, what, what was it that got them into exile in the first place? <laughs> Polytheism, right? Yeah. Worshiping in all the high places, not giving themselves devoted uh, exclusively to Yahweh. So exile had kind of cured them from, <laughs> from that polytheistic temptation. And they said, we are, and so that's why you can see even some of the strong reaction to Jesus when he, when he says, I'm, you know, one with the father, they're picking up stones to stone him. It's, it's ingrained in them. We will not tolerate more than one God. So they just didn't understand the triune nature of God. They, um, they, went, too, they went too far not understanding that. Second, second belief that they held very firm to was Jewish nationalism. Uh, and really, you could say, uh, kind of an arrogant racial ethnic superiority. Um, racism is nothing new. Uh, they they believed, after all, God had chosen Israel from among all the nations, and they forgot that Deuteronomy 7 uh, passage that says, I didn't choose you because you're better, because, because you're weak. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't recognize that and remember that, but they believed they were superior to all the nations around them. They just basically called that whole, uh, everybody else, they called that the world, and then they were the Jews. So third thing that they believed, they believed God provided the way to live through the law, which is why they were favored. So the way to live is in the law. And if I just give myself to devotion to family, to hard work, to monogamy, to monotheism, God will accept me. God will accept me because I do good. I do what he tells me to do. Uh, they actually believe they could fulfill the law. They actually believe they could abide by it. Kind of like you talk to Americans today who really haven't read the Sermon on the Mount, but they say, oh, yeah, I live by Sermon on the Mount. That's kind of my, that's kind of my ethic. I don't need to go to church. I just live by the Jesus ethic, Sermon on the Mount. So what's it say? Well, it's you know, some good stuff, like, you know, God helps those who help themselves, that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. Fourth thing that they believe. So they believed in first uh, monotheism, second nationalism, third, um, really you call it uh, legalism. Uh, you know, God provides a way to live through the law, and they uh, give themselves to that, believe that God favors them for that. Fourth thing they believed is the gift of the land to Israel. Um, so this is what really irritated them about the Romans uh, dominating them and all the, all the people dominating them. They believed that land was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was provided through Moses and Joshua. And so here they are back in the land, and they have all these oppressors, and they want them gone. 
So that's the fifth thing that they believe very firmly is that God is one day going to give it back. It's going to come through Messiah. When Messiah comes, he'll banish all these oppressors, he'll banish all these people, and uh, we will have our land back just as God promised. So there was a messianic hope um, that was thick in the culture, in the land. I mean, in those times, they were looking for the coming of Messiah. They thought they had it in Judas Maccabees. They thought, it, they, thought they had it in a number of different so-called messiahs that rose up in the centuries since, but everybody let them down. And still they were looking for the Messiah. And they looked to that Messiah as to be the fulfillment of all restoration promises. All their hopes and dreams would come true. Bread on, on every table, every man under his own vine, every man drinking his own vat of milk and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so during this period in the first century, um, even the centuries leading up to it, Israel has this hope of the Messiah. But they really don't have, they don't have an interest in the Messiah himself, but only what the Messiah can bring. Um, it's kind of what we describe today as going after God's hand and not his heart. It's you want what he provides you, but you don't want him. And I like to tell people um, when I evangelize that here's the promise of heaven. It's God. God is the promise of heaven. So set aside like fantasies of walking on gold and all that kind of stuff. It's God who is the interest of heaven. Do you want God? Let me describe him to you. And, and I, if, if the spirit is in, working in your heart, you'll realize knowing God, you have everything. This is what the people were like. They didn't want the king. They just wanted the kingdom. So... They thought that they would receive the kingdom just by virtue of being Israelites, just by virtue of being descendants of Abraham. And so they thought when he came, just, oh, hey, guys, thanks for holding on to the land for me while, I, while I've been away. Now I'm coming back. And so they were just taught to, in the meantime, until Messiah came, to practice faithful Judaism. And all of that revolved around their faithfulness to temple observance. As I said, the temple was regulated by the chief priests, the priests, the chief priests, so the, the Sadducees, the liberals. Um, they were in cahoots with Herod, who was in the back pocket of Rome. But the people nonetheless still practiced their religion of the temple because the temple is the center of the heart of the worship of Israel. So they went there. Non-negotiable practices of their life were circumcision, uh, Sabbath day observances, and that was governed uh, mostly by the Pharisees. They said, you can't walk this far. You can, you can, well, if you're going to tithe, you've got to tithe this and how much they had to give and everything. Uh, circumcision, Sabbath day observance, prayers, annual feast day observances. They, they practice all that. You may remember, um, I was just looking this up the other day, about uh, um, the diaspora. You guys know what that word refers to? The diaspora refers to the dispersion, right? So the Jews who lived all over the empire, all over the world. Um, in when Cyrus the Great made his decree for the Israelites to for the Jews to return back to the land, you know how many um, went back to the land? Let's, let's let me give you. Some, you wouldn't know a number, but um, would you say there? Okay, so David when he took a census back in. Was the first, second, first Chronicles twenty-four? It's recorded there. Um, one point one million Israel men of fighting men of Israel 
400,000, 500,000, something like that, 600,000 fighting men of Judah. So if you kind of extrapolate from there on all the men, not just a fighting age, but all the men and the women and children besides, probably five, six million people in Israel, that number may have remained, let's just, let's just say for the sake of argument, remains constant over the, uh, over the centuries, um, from the United Kingdom to the divided kingdom up to the exile. During the exile, the Assyrians came in, carted off the northern tribes, Israel, uh, the Babylonians came next and carted off the southern tribes in Judah. And so there were very few Jews left. Some left, but very few. When Cyrus the, the, the Great decreed their return, um, how many do you think came back? Let's, let's get a show of hands for most of them came back. So say five million or so. What about half of them came back, about two and a half million? A quarter, 1.25 million, something like that, came back to the land. Would you say that? Half, half that. Let's say, okay, um, I'm seeing most of the hands are staying down. Yeah. Less than 10%? Yeah. yeah. You think so? I think yeah. so. 600,000, maybe. 60,000, 40,000, Less than 1% returned. Less than 1%. 40 to 50,000 returned. That's incredible to think about most of the nation. Not really that interested. Most of the Jews, most of the people. So some came back under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. They restored, they laid the foundation of the temple, built the temple, built the wall, started building the city. As God was prospering it over the years, certainly more came. That's interesting to think about. So many of the Jews who came to the feast times, I mean, a lot of these diaspora Jews didn't come every single year. It's just impractical. But they tried to make one pilgrimage to Jerusalem at least once in their lifetime. Sounds like Muslims, huh? Yeah. So they tried to come once in their lifetime. Um, and this is why you see, like in Acts 2, people dwelling in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost from all over the world, all these diaspora Jews have come back. Well, listen, I, we could go on uh, with more New Testament history. I just, I just want to stop there, okay, and um, do a quick overview of the life of Christ, who is the subject of the Gospels. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem around, oh, I don't know, zero. <laughs> around that time. Um, B.C.? I'm not sure. Uh, it was zero where you put them. No, but he was, he was probably actually born, the math is probably putting him around 6, 5, or 4 B.C., so even before that time. Um, Herod the Great died in 4 uh, B.C., and obviously Herod was alive uh, because he sent his soldiers into the region of Bethlehem and slaughtered all the innocents, you know, trying to go after Jesus. So probably around 6, 5 B.C., somewhere in there. And he lived in Bethlehem just, till just before he turned uh, two years old. And around that time when Herod came after those innocents, those kids, his, his cruel paranoia set in. He's a, he's a nutcase um, and hungry for power. And so the wise men just sent him into apoplexy. You know, when they came looking for the king of the Jews, he's like, well, well I'm the king of the Jews. Who are you looking for? Because <laughs> I want to worship him. <laughs> Everybody in the courtroom knew what he meant by worship him. Uh, it meant to 
kill him, you know? So they, um, Joseph fled from Judea, fled from Bethlehem, uh, took Mary and Jesus down to Egypt for a short time. And then while they were there, the Lord appeared to him in a dream, remember, and said, go back. The one who wants to kill him is dead. So he went back to uh, Judea and eventually up to uh, Galilee, settling in Nazareth. And the family, yeah? Um, a couple questions. Do you think he was born in the wintertime? Do you think Quirinius actually had that census done in the winter? Um, How long before they, they left because they were afraid of, you know, they went on into Egypt? Were they there that long in Bethlehem? Do we know? Well, I, I don't, I, I do think that he was born in the fall winterish time. Um, and I, I think that they stayed in Jerusalem or in uh, Bethlehem. You know, they sojourned up to Jerusalem to go and have him circumcised, present at the temple. I think they were living in Bethlehem for a while. Um, and I think probably uh, it was less than two years, but I th I'd say it was probably more than a year. So um, because the wise men came when they were in their own rented house, uh, not to the stable. So those little manger scenes we have of <laughs> shepherds. Not quite right. So the Feast of the Epiphany, which occurs 12 days on the 6th of January for the Catholic Church. Timing is interesting, but timing is, is they weren't there two weeks later. That's no. just, they just put that, Everything the Catholic Church put that, that's one more thing they just placed in there, isn't it? Uh, I don't know anything about the Feast of the Epiphany, so I'll probably January don't 6th. want to speak out of school. Yeah, 12 days of Christmas. I'm just assuming, yeah, it's probably not. Yeah. It's, it's a great way to... Bring people together. <laughs> Hallmark card moment. <laughs> like, the, like the manger scenes. Um, yes. My brother was visiting from New Jersey, and he was telling me about this, um, about this church, this mega church in New Jersey in the area there, the biggest thing. It's kind of like that, that vortex that sucks everybody in, you know? And uh, it's just by its own weight. Um, I think it's called like fluid, you know, or, or ooze or water or something. Anyway, it's called one of those cool, trendy church names. And um, they, they uh, for, the, um, for the manger scene, the pastor and his staff, I think I have this right, dressed up in Star Wars characters for all the different people in the nativity. Now, <laughs> I don't know that nativities are necessarily like if these scenes are biblical and it's sacrilegious to change the nativity scene, I don't know, because it's, if it's set up and it's really not a really biblical thing in the first place, if you mess with it and Star Wars characters are in there, that, that just seems to make it worse. So it just goes from bad to worse, but we're not gonna do that, right, Gary? No, we're not gonna do that. <laughs> um, manger scenes, where am I? Um, wise men, right. So they came, they left, went down to Egypt, came back from Egypt, went to live in Nazareth, and the family lived in relative obscurity. Um, I don't, some, some people believe, believe that he grew up in absolute poverty, abject poverty. I don't believe that. I think that those gifts that the wise men brought probably funded quite a bit for them and, and helped set Joseph up uh, in uh, his business. He's a carpenter. Um, but anyway, they... Um, they lived, they lived there. Uh, Luke discovered in his research, in researching for putting together the, the events of the gospel, his gospel, 
that the family visited Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover. And you see that in recorded at the end of Luke 2. Remember that, where he's a 12-year-old. Uh, he's learning from the teachers there. But then after that incident, we really don't know what happened. We don't want to know what happened before. There's all those Gnostic Gospels that talk about him kind of creating little things out of mud and, and then bringing birds to life. Uh, but that's a bunch of garbage. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of uh, silence uh, and things not known from 12-year-old on up into when he was 30. So we really don't know a whole lot about his uh, life uh, until he appeared at John's baptism. It says in uh, Luke 3.23 that he began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age, uh, which is around... 26, 27 AD. Um, the beginning of the chapter, Luke 3, um, 1 and 2. Luke is so helpful with these uh, nailing down the times. We read this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. Well, there are a lot of points of connection, aren't there? Yeah. To try to triangulate and nail down the exact date. So just the two facts, the reign of Tiberius and Jesus' age, help us really date this around 26 AD. Luke puts the start of Tiberius' reign at his co-regency with Caesar Augustus uh, when he received the authority to exercise imperial power, which is in A.D. 11. And rather uh, than when he assumed sole authority of Augustus at Augustus' death, uh, which is August 19th, A.D. 14. So this puts 26 A.D. corresponding well with the rest of Luke's chronology. Um, Jesus was, he was initially in Jerusalem at, right after his baptism, um, um, spent the predominant part of his early ministry in Galilee. He was based, as we know, in Capernaum, uh, carried on an itinerant preaching ministry in and around Galilee. Um, and then after about two years of public ministry, it says in Luke 9:51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he knows that his, uh, the demise is coming. He knows that his rejection at the hands of the Jews, his eventual death for sins, that's coming. Uh, so he sets his face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9.51. So we find him in those regions, ultimately leading to his final week at the Passover feast, when he became the Lamb of God, sacrificed that year for the sins of his people. Um, I'm going to run through some run through some stuff real quick um, that are kind of some times, rough times and events uh, to help you locate some of the chronology of Jesus' ministry. Around the fall of 26 AD, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. He faces the devil in the wilderness and the temptations, uh, calls his first disciples after that, uh, right around in John's baptism. Uh, later on, he turned the water into wine at Canaan of Galilee. He visited Jerusalem uh, for the Passover feast. This is the first Passover we see described in Scripture, recorded in Scripture. It's probably around April, well, that's Passover, April 27 AD. He cleared the temple there. That's the first. There are two temple clearings in the Gospels. This is the first one. He met with Nicodemus during that time, and then he left Jerusalem for Galilee. Along the way to Galilee, he passed through Samaria. And if you know a map, um, 
you know, Sea of Galilee, long line, Dead Sea, Jerusalem right around there. Where's Samaria? I mean, where's, where's Galilee? Where's Samaria? Samaria's over to the side, isn't it? It's over the west. So he passed through Samaria, not because it was convenient, but because he had an appointment to keep, right? He met with a woman at the well, John 4. Says, says at the end of John 4 that he healed the, we covered this in uh, main service, uh, he healed the nobleman's son, and, uh, who was from Capernaum, and then he returned to Nazareth in Luke 4, where his own hometown welcomed him and embraced him as their, their favorite son. They gave him the key to the city, and then they tried to throw him off a cliff. So, um, During 27 AD, Jesus called Peter and Andrew. He called James and John. And remember, they were fishing around Capernaum, Sea of Galilee, and he called them to be fishers of men. He entered into his itinerant ministry, uh, took him around the region, and then he returned to Capernaum to call Levi the tax collector. Jesus uh, visited Jerusalem for another Passover, uh, second Passover recorded in April, uh, April of 28 AD, looks like, uh, where he healed at the Pool of Bethesda. He uh, was teaching in a Jerusalem synagogue, healing as well. He returned to Capernaum in 28 AD, appointed the 12. Uh, we've just come, been through this in Luke 6. He appointed the 12. He taught, preached the Sermon on the Mount. Um, as we're seeing now, he's healed the centurion slave. He raises the son of the widow at Nain. He answers John the Baptist's questions. There are a lot of teaching, a lot of parables going on in 28 AD. Toward the end of that year, and then into the first months of 29 AD, he fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He fed the 4,000. It seems that there is an unrecorded Passover during this year that uh, doesn't, um, doesn't, isn't recorded in Scripture. Later on in 29 AD, he took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. That was up near Mount um, Hermon, where he uh, extracted that good confession from Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, he uh, then predicted his coming crucifixion, uh, and uh, Peter said, oh, may it never happen to you, and he says, get behind me, Satan. So, hey, good job, Peter, and then get behind me, Satan, Peter, that's Peter. Um, but uh, then at, right after that, he's transfigured before them. Uh, they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Um, Later on that year, September-October time frame, he prepares to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He visits the house of Mary and Martha in Bethany. December 20, 29 AD, he's heading to the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. That's where he heals the man born blind in John 9 and faces increasing opposition and hostility by the Jewish establishment. You read about that in John 10. He raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. That's John 11. Um, Jewish leaders are figuring out the not how to worship him because he's raising the dead. Uh, they're figuring out how to kill him. Well, we can't deny this, so I don't know. Let's kill him. Just seems. How does that? How does that factor into your reasoning? I don't know. So we're heading now during all this opposition, heading toward his final days, spring of 30 A.D. Uh, he heads through Jericho, through Bethany. He goes into Jerusalem, received and welcomed in that triumphal entry. And at Jerusalem, he clears out the temple again. So there is a, at the beginning and at the end of his ministry, he clears out the temple. Um, he tells them, this is to be a house of prayer for all people, all the nations. He teaches in the city. 
He's in Jerusalem for his final Passover, third Passover, that he eats with his disciples in the upper room. John, uh, almost half his gospel is devoted to that upper room discourse. Um, so in April 30 AD, we have the entire uh, Passion Week. Now that's a very brief uh, overview. I realize we don't have time for uh, to do a, an entire chronology and do it justice. But I'd like to refer you to a couple of, uh, well, I'll just show you this one. I'll show you another one in a second. This is called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's by Harold Honer. Um, you, you'll find this book uh, fascinating. I, I refer to it often um, just to go back and check my times and dates and everything, but this is a really good faithful. You, some people don't agree with Honer, uh, but when you start to get into the details of um, times, I mean, it doesn't always tell you, okay, date stamp, you know, September 23rd, uh, you know, 27 AD. It doesn't say that in scripture. Uh, that's not as important for the gospel writers to put down as we would, you know, have liked them to, to give us that. But, um, but Harold Hunter has spent a lot of time trying to nail that down, trying to nail down the, the chronology and try to get you into the time frame. And I really like trying to learn that because it gives you a little bit of uh, sense of, hey, was it cold when they were out? Was it warm? Uh, were they kind of out there lounging in the, you know, because that part of the world is on the same rough parallel as like Southern California. And they're on a coast area, a coastal area. They got nice breezes coming in from the med. Um, it had to be beautiful during the spring and summertime and mild winters and everything. So you can kind of picture, put yourself in there and add a little color to your reading if you if you get some of the chronological aspects of the life of Christ. Um, but hopefully that'll be enough to encourage your, um, enough background to encourage your reading of the Gospels. There's so much more we could say, but we want to just keep moving a little bit. What was the other book? Um, I'll give it to you in a second, because okay. uh, it relates to my, my next point. Now I'm going to wake you up a little bit with some questions. I want to do just, um, I can't get into a whole lot of detail here. There is a lot of detail, and I'd love to get into it. Maybe sometime I will teach uh, a course on, like, textual criticism and some of the historical criticism that has tried to chip away at the historicity and the faithfulness, reliability of the Gospels, um, but that'll probably be years out. Um, it's something, though, that I find uh, fascinating for its, um, not, just, not just because it kind of is interesting in an apologetic sense, but also interesting just in the sense of getting you really familiar with Scripture. Um, it's really neat to study it. But... I want to do just a little preemptive work to help you grow in some of your discernment uh, about the relationship of the Gospels with each other. Um, how do the Gospels relate together, okay? And I want to start by playing a little game and see how familiar you are with the Gospels. So we're going to start with a, with a very easy question, and then I'm going to get progressively harder. You guys ready? Yeah. <laughs> so of the four, here's the first question. Of the four Gospels, which one stands apart as unique in style and character? John. 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 That was easy, right? John, what, what, is, what do you see that's different about it? Bryce, since you're the first one to speak up. What's, di what's different, what seems different about it than the other three? What do you mean? Uh, it's, uh, and, don't, and don't just say unique in style and character. <laughs> he's trying to explain, show that he is the son of God, that he is mm -hmm. Jesus. Yeah. 
So he, he focuses more on that aspect of Jesus and his life, I guess, mm -hmm. or like, no, no I, yeah, yeah. I think you're you're right on the right track, and, and definitely he says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? So he's he's stating his purpose right there. Um, the other gospel writers want you to know that Jesus is God too, but uh, there's something unique about the way John does it. Anybody else? I think I saw you. John was written much later than the other three gospels, right? But, uh, Years, I think, nineties. He was in the nineties. Yeah. The the point is, because of the fact it was written so late, there were so many people who were alive during Jesus's time who may very well have been facing reprisals had they been written about. They are dead now. So John could include some stories that the others maybe could not include. And also, he had the advantage of being the one whom Jesus loved, and he had an entire lifetime to think about this. So I think he put things together, and, and I'm kind of like what Bryce is at. He kind of wants you to know that upper room discourse. That's that's what's left of him in these these really deep theological things because that's what he had left at the end of his life was all this pondering for half a century. You definitely get the feel from John that this intimate yeah. intimacy in in that you know that upper room discourse is so personal, so intimate between Jesus and those men. Um, that's that's unique. Mm -hmm. Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. Where is that? That's in John, right? So we get the most famous verse in the entire world is what John three sixteen, right there, in that in that dis, that uh, conversation with Nicodemus. So yeah, as you guys said, the Gospel of John is written well after the other three, probably in the early nineties, and in he records accounts that are unique and different, and they're drawing attention, the reader's attention to not maybe not just the facts of Jesus' life and ministry, but the meaning of those facts. Uh, so it's really you know, if you look at the Gospels as recording the history, the, the life of Jesus Christ, his work, uh, who he was, what he did, um, you look at the epistles as the apostolic interpreters of those facts. So both the interpretation of the facts and the facts themselves are important, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Both. That's why um, liberals who will say, you know, it's really not important what, you know, if, if this fact is actually true or if it's just metaphorical in meaning. Uh, they'll say that about, you know, did Jesus walk on water? Well, we're not supposed to take that as literal. I mean, no, that's... That's that's a that's a metaphor for Jesus has, you know, great. He's light of light of foot, or I don't know, <laughs> great buoyancy. <laughs> he's incredibly buoyant. You know, he just floats right on the top. Um, but um, but liberals will say that you know we can we can understand the spirituality of the New Testament, but not be bound by its strange supernatural claims. We don't need to defend those things. And, you know, the original liberals were those who really wanted to make an apologetic to the unbelieving world. They started by saying, you know, let's just, let's just tuck all this embarrassing supernatural stuff over here to the side, because I think that the, the modern world with 
all of its understanding of ancient myth and the way literary genres are and everything, they're not going to accept any of this stuff. And it's kind of embarrassing anyway. Um, axe heads floating and Jesus walking on water and multiplying bread and fish and bread and fish. That's not... No, it's just a metaphor to say that Jesus is very productive or <laughs> Jesus is really powerful. He's a really good guy. You should know, get to know him or you should believe that. But they say that the facts aren't really important. If you give up one fact, the whole thing comes apart. Mm -hmm. If you give up one fact, it's not true, and therefore the whole thing is not true. Mm -hmm. Back to what we were saying in apologetics and evangelism, inconsistency is one inconsistency is the thread that pulls the whole worldview apart. You cannot hedge or give up one fact. All these facts are true. But they are not bare facts. They're facts that require interpretation. And that's why we have the apostolic writings and the epistles that interpret all the facts, interprets Jesus' life and ministry to us. So John, as the gospel writer, seems to be kind of giving accounts that help us on our way toward the epistles. They help us on our way to understand the meaning of the facts that we read about Jesus' life. That's what's kind of unique about John's gospel. He's transitions uh, <clears throat> from historic facts, using historic facts, but from the historic facts of divine record to divine interpretation of those facts by the apostles, like in the epistles. So John stands apart, okay? It does. Anybody know the term uh, that's used to describe the other three gospels? Synoptic. Synoptic. Anybody know what that means? Synoptic? Why do we call it synop synoptic? Synapse? Syn is S-Y-N means the same. Uh, I'm not sure what the optic means. But. So syn means is a, a Greek um, like, uh, like preposition that means with or together with or something like that. Op optic, it seems to come from an optic verb, you know, so it is the word um, optasia, vision or view. So, so they view the same events together with one another is really kind of what synoptic means, okay? So this doesn't count for points, but in, out of curiosity, has anyone heard a reference to the so-called synoptic problem? Yes. Anybody heard that? You've heard that? Okay, a couple of people. Um, anybody know what it means or what it refers to? Synoptic problem. Some of them seem to... There's a problem in Scripture? <laughs> Uh, some of them seem to record the same incident differently. Is that what they call it? Okay, so it's problems like that mm -hmm. of what seem to some to be clear-cut contradictions in the Bible. So we'll come to those in just a second, okay? One of them. Which two Gospels would you say have more of a Jewish flavor and which two Gospels have more of a Gentile flavor? Matthew, Matthew Mark, 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 Jewish, and Jewish. Lucas the Gentile. Luke and no, no. I hear some muttering. <laughs> Anybody want to stand firm and speak out boldly? <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> All right. Bold I would say that uh, Matthew and Mark are uh, written to Jewish audiences, and Luke is primarily written to Gentile audiences. Okay, I'm talking about all four. So Luke and then John would be Gentile. Because there's two that are Jewish in flavor and two that are Gentile in flavor. I'm going to force you to do all four, account for all four. I don't know the answer to that. I think it is John. 
that's more yeah, because it's more what more Gentile yeah. more Gentile yeah okay. he's trying to help them see that the gospel is for the whole world not yeah. just for the Jewish nation hmm. okay good yeah uh, Mark is definitely Gentile he leaves off all the genealogies the parables the fights with the Pharisees that sort of thing and I would say Matthew and John are the Jewish and then that would mean John, Luke and Mark, Luke, the, Luke and or Luke and Mark, Mark yeah, Gentile. or Gentile. Hmm. Okay, so who wants to take on Tim? <laughs> I don't know. Tim's pretty smart. He's pretty smart. <laughs> smart. He's wearing. Are those USC Trojan colors? No, no, no. Oh, okay. They are too. They are. They are. They might be the right color. Let's not the shirt. I was gonna say any USC so, um, anybody else want to take a different opinion? I like what Tim said about Mark, since there's no genealogies, that would lead yourself to think that it's more Gentile than yeah. Jewish. And I'm, I'm certain when you write a letter to Quinarius, that's Greek. That's Gentile. So Theophilus. Theophilus. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain that that one has yeah. to be Gentile. So, yeah, the other two are, I don't know. So, um... Yes, uh, I, I, I'm going to have to agree with Tim. So, <laughs> Tim, we'll fight on together, brother. But um, Matthew... You, huh? said, you said he got points for that, right? No, no, oh, you know, I said actually the previous one about the synoptic problem, no points. Okay, so that counted four against. This one he gets points for. <laughs> sure does. So, you're... you're, you're um, so, Mark yeah. and Luke. Definitely Mark and Luke are more Gentile in flavor. In fact, Mark was, was written probably from Rome and probably two Romans. Um, and uh, Peter is, and Paul, really, both of them are the influence in Mark, uh, with Mark. Um, definitely Paul, because Mark traveled with Paul and uh, ended up in Rome where Paul was. So Mark probably, uh, definitely Jewish and for the reasons he said and more as well. Um, Luke, definitely Gentile interest. Uh, definitely um, writing to Theophilus, Matthew and John. Matthew is it, we'll get into that in just a second. But Matthew, both Matthew and John are written from a Jewish per perspective. Um, while John um, writing from Ephesus, I can see why you may have thought yeah, Gentile. But you know he's writing from a Jew. I'm just writing the flavor of it, the perspective of it. It is coming from he's thoroughly, thoroughly Jewish. You could put. You can take John out of out of a Jewish land, but you can't take a Jewish land out of John. That guy is Jewish in his thinking, which is what accounts for those world passages where he speaks of the world and he speaks of he's not thinking of world, every person without exception. He's thinking of world in terms of every people without distinction. Um, so um, here's another question for you. Which accounts are found in all four Gospels? Which ones? Or do you do you want me to name some and or crucifixion? Crucifixion? <laughs> one of them, which one of them leaves out the resurrection? None of them. <laughs> Just a trick question. <laughs> um, um, what's that? Feeding of the five thousand. Bingo! You get a star. All right. Um, what else? Anybody else? Let's just say the events of the Passion Week, all four Gospels, okay? Feeding of the 5,000, that's a good one. It's interesting, but, um, well, the triumphal entry is in all four. 
Okay. And one other, the, um, the accounts about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a very, very important figure. We tend to kind of pass over him. You know, we get into our Bible reading at the beginning of the year. We're like, yeah, John the Baptist. And then we move on. Man, that guy was known. He was really, oh, you don't, Tammy? <laughs> I thought I'd say you shake your head like, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to condemn everybody. Um, okay, so here's a, here's a final question. And um, this is going to transition us into the final portion for tonight's uh, study. Um, we want to understand, this is, uh, has to do with literary form, and you think, Whoa, how, what could be more boring than talking about literary form? It's not boring at all. It's not boring at all. <laughs> Thank you, English <laughs> We want to understand here, when we talk about literary form, we want to understand what are the Gospels? What kind of a literary form are there? What kind of literature are the Gospels? What's the genre? If they, if they were published separately as their own little book, and then you went to, um, you know, not contained in the Bible itself, but, but published separately, where would you go to look for them in your library or in uh, the bookstore? Um, they're literature, right, of some sort, but, and so they have to be patterned uh, on the kinds of literature known at any, almost any point of histories, right? So what are they? So let me, let me give you, I'll give you multiple choice on this one. Okay, we'll make it come up with literature types. Um, graphic novel, no. Um, it's not that one. So multiple choice quiz. Are the Gospels patterned on biography? Are they biographical literature? Are they patterned on historical literature? Are they history? Are they patterned on memoir? You know, personal memoirs you jot down. Or number four, D, none of the above. How about E, all of the above? E, all of the above. Except D. <laughs> so I'll do D, all of the above, and E, none of the above. How's that? Yeah. yeah. Historical. I like historical. I just like the first two. The third you, one was. First two? Because memoir would mean. Man, I've got to come up with like. We're going to go through a whole alphabet of choices. One and three, but not two. Two and four, but not eight. You got to get to the board. John's was. Yeah, wouldn't John you was say John was memoir? Yeah. Because he was there witnessing all that, and and then, yeah. then at the end, mm -hmm. didn't he say there are many more things? But, but he didn't write but in the first person. He never put his name. What? What? Who? But he didn't write in the first person. Comes no. a quiet voice to demolish that theory. Okay. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Send some Roman iron in this one. See, all the memoirs that I've ever read um, contain more opinions, like, oh, this is how I felt about this, and this was my feeling at the time, or whatever. And none of them are taken that way. It's not interpreted that way. It's just a perspective of what they had at the same event. All right, so two, two contradictions against the memoir theory. What else? Sorry, Chuck. I withdraw my memoirs. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> All right. So Gary, you and Joel, you guys like biography and history. I do. Yeah. Okay. Historical biographies. Historical biography. Okay. So anybody, anybody say all of the above. History, biography, memoir. Yes, I do. Lori says all of the above. Anybody say none of the above. Can I add another category? Yeah. Another category. Can I add another category? Sure. Like, this is kind of a very secular way to say this, but shall we say self-help? Self-help. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, would, I would more soon, I, 
I wouldn't say that's a biblical category, right. but, I, but I, I know what you're talking about, but I would actually put like more of the epistles in that category, like the second half of Paul's epistles, you know, where he doctrine here, practice here. Right, but the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so I can see what you're saying. I, I'm just saying like as a whole, it's like one section, True. So the whole thing probably. So you could see some. I think Jesus is cringing right now when you're calling his sermon self-help, but... <laughs> He's like, self-help? What kind of a church is that guy going to? <laughs> so if you said, and I'm the only one that said none of the above, you're correct. Yes, Well, when I worked at Borders, we would have put it in the religious section. <laughs> 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 okay, <clears throat> I, but I, point taken. Yeah, I, I kind of start. I kind of set it up in a bookstore library. So here's here's why I say that. Here's why I say it's really none of the above. It has. I mean, obviously, it's recording history. Obviously, it's got some biographical information in there. But is it strictly a biography? What's why is it not a biography? The biography is only about a person's life, and Jesus transcends life. Well, that's autobiography. autobiography. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but even more, more lacking in the Gospels about Jesus's biography. It's only three years of his life. Only th yeah, only three years of his life. Where's the? You live thirty-three. Where's the other thirty? Where, where's where's all that time we want to know about? Right from birth up until 12? How did he play with the other kids? That's what all those Gnostic Gospels are trying to fit in for us and tell us, hey, here's all the stuff you want to know. We've got the hidden knowledge and we're going to tell you and publish some new Gospels for you. <clears throat> As a bunch of baloney. But there's a point, there's a reason why that's not there. So it's not strictly biography and it's not just history either. This is because history tells multitude of perspective, right? It, it tells what's going on. I mean, when it just, when it mentions Quirinius and Caesar Augustus, they're incidental. <laughs> Are they not the most, some of the most powerful people in the universe at the time? Well, not according to the gospel writer. According to the gospel writer, the most powerful person in the universe is being born. Interesting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So why is it not Why is it not history again? Because it doesn't have the marks of a, of a true uh, his, uh, work of history. A work of history walks through the events that lead and influence other events. It has a telling of all the different factors. And this does not do that. This doesn't do that. So these are called Gospels, right? Gospel, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good message. It's good, good news. There are no literary works prior to the Gospels that can form a pattern for the Gospels. Why? Because there was no Gospel prior to the Gospel. <laughs> there was no Gospel prior to the coming of Jesus Christ and this whole story that gave us this Gospel, this good news. So this is a first. This is something that's utterly unique. I heard a a scholar, I think, make a, an interesting point in talking about this issue of genre, and he called this, uh, the Gospels, he referred to them as propaganda. Mm. Propaganda. 
that has a negative connotation to us, and it should. Um, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking gospels are propaganda or calling them that. But strictly speaking, what is propaganda? Propaganda is literature. It's uh, you know material content that is used to promote or publicize a certain viewpoint with a view to influencing, to influence and shaping your opinion and your thinking. That's what propaganda is. So with that in mind, listen to you raise this. John's stated purpose in writing, John 20, 30 to 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. If this were a book of history or a book of biography, they'd be there. Okay? Many other signs in the presence of the disciples are not written in this book, but these are written. Why, John? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. John's telling you in his gospel, I've written all this stuff because I want you to be a Christian. <laughs> I want you to convert. He's not interested in just purely recording history. He's not interested in just providing people with an interesting biography. He's not interested in satisfying, interested in satisfying curiosities. Um, he's not interested in, like Annie said, his published memoirs, all his feelings. And well, when that happened, I was so hurt. And then when that happened, I was really overjoyed. He doesn't say anything. <laughs> he even leaves his name out. I think that was your point. Yeah. Is this a, he's not publishing his memoirs, My Journey with Jesus, or anything like that. <laughs> he wants his readers to become Christians. He is intentionally trying to influence people. He wants to persuade them that they might become Christians. They charged Paul with it too, right? What's that? But Paul, they said about Paul too, they accused Paul of persuading people to become Christians. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, what was it, Festus yeah, in, in the end of Acts. You're going to persuade me, Paul, to become a Christian? After so he, he lied, I'd love you to become a Christian. Except, you know, except for these chains. <laughs> um, you got me in chains, by the way. You want to unloosen that, please? Um, so, now the aspect of propaganda, uh, that aspect is true, the strict part of that, but I'd recommend against describing them as propaganda because the word propaganda has a decidedly negative connotation, like misleading information, misleading content, false, biased, but, um, Even though we're accused of that. Yeah. Well, but we do have a bias, though. Right. We do have presuppositions. And we're overt about that. We take it as true. We take it as God's written word. Um, these are written, all these gospels are written with a divine bias. They are presupposing the truth of all that is written before. They presuppose that. And that's because they've been superintended by the Holy Spirit. Peter said, 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20, we have the prophetic word made uh, more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, the morning star rises in your hearts. <clears throat> Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then perfect this is perfect recollection guaranteed by the superintendents of the Holy Spirit and by divine authorship, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. God divinely breathed out these words and these men um, spoke from God as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. And they, they, they involve perfect recollection. You say, well, how can a book written by mere men you know, not contain errors? Men are imperfect. 
So they're going to have errors in there. It's going to be imperfect. But, but Jesus promised his disciples in the upper room, John 14, 25 to 26. He said, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we have the guarantee of Christ. We have the guarantee of the Spirit. We have the guarantee of God. And all of this is perfect accuracy. Now, I'm going to talk real quick about the unique character of each gospel. Anyone notice, uh, and really I have to, have to skip ahead really. I'm going to skip ahead because of the time and because I know that each of the coming teachers are going to handle Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their own order and get to the unique character. But um, let me skip. Just say this. I'll just summarize by saying Matthew, written to instruct uh, the Jews. It's written to instruct them about uh, Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. You know how often that term is used. This was written to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet and then gives the fulfillment over and over in Matthew's gospel. That serves as an instruction device for Jewish Christians, but also serves as a, a material for their apologetic to non-believing Jews as well. So they knew by taking Matthew's gospel, I can walk into a conversation with a Jew, with a fellow Jew who doesn't believe, rejects Christ, and I can read this to him. Use this. So powerful apologetic. Mark, <clears throat> shortest gospel, like Tim said, cuts out genealogies, cuts out uh, a lot of Jewish interest stuff, and it's written almost like front page headlines. Boom, boom, boom. It's, it's rapid. It moves. It's like you might call it the headline gospel, you know, where it just moves from story to story to story very, very quickly. It really is kind of written to evangelize the Gentiles, and that's why it reads with such pace. Luke, also Gentile in flavor, written to instruct believing Gentiles like Theophilus. Um, and then uh, John, final gospel, written to evangelize, but written from a distinctly Jewish perspective, uh, but written to, to instruct and evangelize on the meaning of all the facts of Jesus' life. Now, back to this so-called synoptic uh, problem. What is that synoptic problem? The term, by talking about the synoptic problem, it refers to what really what evangelical scholars have found troubling um, uh, from the accusations by yesterday's bunch of dead German liberals, really, but by a bunch of liberal scholars who try to uh, point out, emphasize, and then amplify any supposed or so-called contradictions in the Gospels. So they take the three books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you separate John out. Um, they, you know, that's that's not part of the same view. And they say these um, these three writers. You can see. Go ahead and turn your Bibles. In fact, to let's have let's have this side of the room. You guys turn to Matthew eight five to thirteen. And Tim, why don't you read that for us? And let's get this side of the room. Turn to what we just are covering in Sunday morning, Luke seven one to ten. And uh, let me get a reader over here. Joel, you want to read? You looked at me first, so. Yeah, just what we're covering on Sunday morning. But um, so, so liberal scholars have 
gone through, you know, many of them in Europe raised with the Bible, you know, whether Catholics or, or Protestants, but there was a, in the 18th century, uh, with the increase of the Enlightenment thinking and rationality, and then they start to, to approach um, like they've looked at the rest of the world with a critical, um, skeptical eye. They start looking at the scripture with a critical, skeptical eye, and they say, wait a minute, um, we need to be the sole arbiters of what's true and false. And when they go into scripture, they say that is contradictory. And so from, it really is from an unbelieving perspective, they start to highlight and emphasize some of these contradictions. But you can see on the surface of it where they get some of that. So let's have Tim go ahead and read Matthew 5, uh, 8, sorry, 5 through 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Okay, thank you. Joel, go ahead and read loud that uh, Luke 7 passage. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal a servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So I'm just looking at the time and realizing we're out of it. And um, <laughs> just uh, if I can get just a couple minutes, I want to resolve uh, this very quickly for you. There are um, some differences in those two readings, aren't there? In Matthew, you have the voice of the centurion in the centurion speaking directly to Jesus. In Luke, the centurion speaks through emissaries. In Matthew, um, you have it all taking place in one conversation. In Luke, it's two conversations, right? First by the Jewish elders and secondly by the friends, the delegation of friends. Um, there are some other differences you could point to as well. 
you know, like the whole part in the point about, uh, you know, at the, at the, at, in the kingdom, you know, from the east and the west, people are going to be sitting at the table, but not the sons of the kingdom, right? So you've got these differences going on between the two accounts. From apostolic times, all the way through the church fathers, all the way through the medieval church, all the way through Reformation times, all the way through Reformation and on into Puritan times, and all the way up until the 18th century. The instinctual reading of the church was always to believe the accounts could harmonize. To say, there are differences, there are distinctions, and obviously Matthew is writing from a different perspective and a different purpose than Luke is. Luke is writing from a different one than Matthew is. When we bring these two accounts together, we can see how everything that seems to be at first in a, a contradiction and contradictory, we see how all those things resolve. And the way they resolve is what Matthew records. He's trying to get to the point because he's doing apologetic for, for Christ as fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's more emphasizing Jewish concerns. He's putting, he's putting this, he's not interested in so much in, in Gentile salvation. He's not so interested in emphasizing the character of the centurion. He's just getting right to the point. He's putting the voice of the emissaries. He's taking their, them out of it, which is in first century thinking and in Middle Eastern thinking, when an emissary speaks, that person speaks. It's kind of like when an ambassador speaks in another country, the president of the United States is speaking. It's the same thing. So if you put it, you know, America said this, President Trump, President Obama, President Trump said this, an ambassador speaking, and that President Putin, Putin takes that as President Trump, President Obama, President Winfrey, you know, coming. <laughs> you know, I, if she becomes president, we're all going to feel so affirmed, aren't we? <laughs> feel so good. Um, so, so liberal scholars of the 18th century, Enlightenment thinking, um, would, would take those apparent contradictions and not, not try to harmonize. That wasn't their approach at all. Their approach was instead to amplify any seeming contradiction and try to show how these different writers had different agendas to try to put forth a certain school of thought. So there's just so much more to say that I can't say right now. Um, so what I want to say in, in conclusion, I want to give you, I want to give you four. Oh, and I want to tell you this too: that the liberal scholars are not. They they were the source of source criticism, redaction criticism, form criticism, all historical criticism. Uh, lower lower criticism has to do with the text itself, and we agree with lower criticism, trying to get into the the weeds of the text and clarify what the text is. Higher criticism is all this other stuff. It's all this liberal, unbelieving viewpoint coming in to criticize and be skeptical about scripture and tear it apart. We understand when unbelievers do that. The problem today is that evangelical scholars for the last, you know, starting with Fuller Seminary, or, well, not starting with Fuller Seminary, but Fuller Seminary was a hotbed of it. Dallas Seminary is now very, very much enmeshed in, in, in this. But evangelical scholars are capitulating to this worldly point of view. And commentaries are coming out, and they will talk to you about, well, this really isn't... Um, Mark's perspective, this is coming from Q. This isn't really Matthew's perspective. He's borrowing from Mark and Q. Q is a German word that means quella, means source. So there's a source document, 
No one's found it. It's just constructed and concocted out of thin air. But Q and Mark are supposed to be the original two-source theory. There's also a four-source theory. There's all these theories about well, all these sources that were borrowed and pulled. And some people patch this together and other people patch that together. The, the dependence of the gospel writers on each other. I want you to understand that that's out there. And I want you to not, when you start to see source stuff and you start to see the writer, instead of just saying Mark said this and Luke said that, um, when they start to say the writer or the perspective here is, your flag should go up, your warning. So here are four things. Start, number one, start. When you read the gospel, start with a believing perspective, knowing that God is the author and he does not contradict himself. Number two, assume consistency. Even when you read Matthew 8 and Luke 7, assume consistency. There is not a contradiction here. It's non, the law of non-contradiction. God does not contradict himself. So assume consistency, not just of God, but of his word. Pay close attention to the context and not, not just the near context, but the far and the whole context of the gospel, the purpose of it, so that you know the purpose of the writer and where he's coming from, his perspective. And then fourthly, instinctively, knee-jerk, attempt to harmonize these disparate accounts rather than question or reject them, okay? Harmonize, 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 harmonize. You will instinctively harmonize when you believe that beneath this is a non-contradictory God who can breathe out and protect a non-contradictory word. That's what I wanted to tell you. Now, harmony of the Gospels. One Perfect Life, John MacArthur and his team put together. This is an account of the Gospels all woven together um, called One Perfect Life. This is called A Harmony of the Gospels by Robert L. Thomas and Stan Gundry. Stan Gundry, Robert Gundry is a liberal. Stan Gundry is conservative. <laughs> Robert uh, Thomas and Stan Gundry, and they put together this Harmony of the Gospels that, that puts them in parallel accounts together. I use this all the time to make sure that I am in the right place and not contradicting. It's a very, very important tool. And if you really want to get into the critical stuff, this is worth its weight in gold, diamonds, whatever. The Jesus Crisis by um, Robert Thomas and David Farnell, both of them professors of mine. It's called The Inroads of Historical Criticism into Evangelical Scholarship. This, um, this wasn't popular among evangelical scholarship. Yeah. They, didn't like, they didn't like this book coming out, but it is a very, very important book. And like I said, God permitting, time permitting, I'll teach through it someday. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for these um, divinely inspired, God-breathed gospels. We thank you for each of the writers, how you uh, inspired the product uh, of their writing. We thank you for using each of them in their unique voice, their unique style, their unique, unique emphasis, purposes. We are so thankful for the scripture, thankful for this gospel that saves us. We're thankful for the facts of the gospel. We're thankful for the interpretation of those facts that we might understand. Thank you for saving us and giving us new life in Christ. We do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we be, in believing we do have life in his name. And we are so thankful to you for that. Please uh, bless the rest of our evening and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.